Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 74, Genius Losai. Your setting is the character. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by Will Heinmarch. Genius loci, and there's a uh, uh, there's a debate as to how you're supposed to actually say this, but a genius loci arises the spirit of a place, uh, uh, the locus, uh, uh, whether it's loci or loci. My dictionary says both are uh, viable. Um, but we, what I want to talk about today is the idea that uh, uh, spaces can be characters, and that characters, uh, re- especially in RPGs, require spaces. And one of the reasons this is important is because uh, how many of you guys saw any of the Dungeons and Dragons movies? No, like, like honestly. Okay, right, exactly. Um, how many of you guys saw any of the Lord of the Rings movies? Right, okay. Um, how many of you guys could name the main characters from the D&D movies? Cool, all right. Uh, and I remember how many, Snails. Was it? I remember Snails. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I remember one of the Wayne's brothers. That's Snails. Snails, okay. Yeah. How many of you can name characters from Lord of the Rings movies? Okay, so uh, uh, one of the reasons that... Um, Lord of the Rings is a viable, successful property for translating a fantasy setting into film is because of its characters. The environment is great, and New Zealand is doing a magic job, and we have this great structure where we have the Argonaut, and we have Bree, and we have the Shire, but you can't make a movie about those things without people to actually inhabit them, without characters to do things. You can, I mean, you can give it a shot and just make a character for one particular movie, and people have tried, but the reason that a lot of RPGs don't translate from RPGs into other media is because they don't have a basic character or an arch character that defines that setting. Uh, we can make, presumably, someday we will see movies about uh, uh, Elminster or characters from uh, Dragonlance or what have you, but those are those won't be players' characters, right? Those, that doesn't really help us, per se, or reflect our play of those settings. Because characters are always bespoke in an RPG, and the setting is the thing that is consistent. When we play in Dark Sun, or we play in uh, uh, any... A, a, a fantasy RPG setting that is indigenous to RPGs or any homebrew campaign, the setting is what we have in common with the other players, including people who are, might be playing Dark Sun thousands of miles away, right? Or people who are playing their own uh, Star Wars campaign that they say, well, we don't have any of the movie characters in it, we don't have any expanded universe characters in it, whatever it is, uh, uh, but we have certain Star Wars things in common that if I say that we have a stormtrooper shows up, or I say that the one in Falcon's class ship flies by, that's true. Or if I say that a, a Death Star is approaching or whatever, right? We have some of these common references that are not necessarily characters, but that we can use to understand the setting. And that is in part because of uh, a variety of setting tropes, but it's also because of uh, uh, the space itself. The environment is characterized. Uh, we can't all do graphic design um, for our settings. We can't all do hire content artists. We don't want to necessarily hire content artists depending on the kind of setting we're building or what it is that we're trying to design. RPGs are not inherently a, or uh, uh, not necessarily a visual medium. There is a great visual component to teaching and uh, 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 embracing and learning a lot of RPGs, 
but for tabletop games, story games, RPGs of, of any stripe, the art is not necessarily essential, right? I can say people, somebody walks in with armor, somebody walks in with uh, Kevlar, somebody walks in in priest's robe, somebody walks in and he looks like a wizard. We all have different notions maybe what exactly looks like a wizard means, but we have a certain common referent about the setting, about the, the universe. If I say you walk into a giant cathedral and it's ruined, that changes... Uh, 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 from mind to mind, but it draws us close enough together that we can kind of overlap and communicate a little bit about that setting because we have this common reference. Um, you guys know, any of you guys read Borges? I'm a big fan of Jean-Louis Borges. Um, uh, uh, so hope not that the straightness of your path that stubbornly branches off in two and stubbornly branches off in two will have an end. Your fate is iron bound. Uh, uh, what he's writing about here is about um, the idea of a uh, uh, a uh, Labyrinth without a center or an outer edge that is the size of the world if the entire planet were a maze and there were no way out of it and there were nowhere to go, whatever it is that's going on, no matter where it is that you think you want to end up, you can't because the space is just going to funnel you around and funnel you around and you're just going to keep wandering in a maze. In a way, to a certain extent, he's describing a, a, a dungeon world, right? He's describing a, a, a planetary dungeon, a, a fictional environment that we can conceive but that we cannot inhabit, we cannot build, we cannot actually create. And it's uh, 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 the notion that your fate is iron-bound, which is to say that your fate is to just wander forever, or uh, uh, as it branches up in two and you make these choices, to just go on into infinity, is, uh, to me, what one of these is highlights is the, the difference between the notion that uh, uh, in an RPG you have utter freedom, you have sandboxes, you have completely uh, 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 trackless wilderness that you can explore, and how do you know when you're done doing it? Right? How do you know when you've gotten there? How do you know when you've achieved the thing? You have to have these goals. If you literally just have a completely open planet that you're just going to explore, a space without bounds, without limitations, without a secret center, without an edge, without a, a, a goal, you will just be wandering the desert for the entirety of your life. Uh, uh, but the fate is iron-bound is also, if you will, to a certain extent, the fact that uh, uh, the narrative, which is going to be baked into so many places is uh, uh, fixed in the sense that an ending is coming, but what ending that is is not necessarily prefixed, right? Like, so, for example, if you go into a museum gallery, you go into a, a, a curated exhibit, and you go in the front door, and you follow all the signs the way that they kind of indicate you're supposed to go for the flow, you will get, like, an arc, a narrative process, you'll get a little trajectory through the space, you'll get a process by which you experience the introductory material, and then the next step, and then the next argument, and then the deeper material, and then the closing material, and then the gift shop, and you've been led through this process in a way that takes you from a beginning to an end. But if that exhibit is designed so that it's not a corridor, or so that it's not a series, a U-shaped series of rooms, so that it is possible to hotwire it, to short-circuit it, to make a wrong turn, and go into the middle, and then come back towards the beginning, and then go back to the middle, and then go to the end, two things are happening. One is that the exhibit is, and this is there's a lot of debate about this. My wife's in the museum business, and I do some reading on this, but there's a lot of debate about whether or not that is more or less educational as a process. Because you have now essentially mapped to the space as you move through it because you had to, because you had to go, am I in the same... Yeah, I've been here before. That's a different experience than new room, new room, new room, done. Right? Mapping a movie, for example, is very, very hard to do. Have you ever seen those things? I don't have an example here, but have you seen those things where they do the color palette matches of movies that just show you the colors, the general colors, the frames? You can see a whole movie go by that way. Like Wes Anderson movies are always just three or four colors and they're pretty well regulated through the whole picture, right? That's kind of eye-opening and kind of shocking because when the movie's going on, you don't necessarily do that. You don't go, oh, we're, we're in a gray and pink scene. We just came from a blue-green scene, right? Uh, you, you might experience it, you might feel it, but you're not mapping a movie because its progress is inevitable. When the progress is not inevitable, you have to map it and you have to engage to a certain extent with the environment in a way that makes it interactive and makes you interact with it. 
Because now as you're moving through the environment, you're saying to yourself, hey, wait, have I been here before? Or wait, this looks familiar, but no, this is different. Then you get that sense of uh, uh, interaction creates a personal dynamic. I may not be able to carry whether you go back to C and then forward to D or back to B and then back to D and then back to C. That experience is not necessarily the one that I cultivated for you, but it's one that I helped facilitate by designing the exhibit. And it's one that you created that is going to be different from the one that you created, different from the one that you created, different from the one that you created. And it's going to have a personal interaction with you, a personal relationship to you that is yours. Even if you, by the standards of the narrative, somebody's predefined narrative, screw it up, right? It exists, and it, that is a, a, a way of mapping causality in space in a way that is always going to have the freedom to respond to the player. And I'll deal with that in just a little bit. Uh, does anybody know what this is? Can you tell by looking at this? Map. Yeah? A map of what? Anyone want to guess? Does it make me do work? <laughs> That's London. You can see some of the Thames here flowing through here. And some parks. What it is is that it's mapping by color uh, the orientation of the streets. So streets that go north-south are one color, streets that go east-west are another color, streets that are off on angles are different shades and hues. It's a way of conveying this information that suggests to a certain extent the character of London in a way other than just looking at it on a map. And this really becomes viable when you look at a different city, like New York, and you start to see the grids of Manhattan and the different boroughs and neighborhoods start to collide and have their different interactions and see uh, uh, how they are distinct and how they interrelate and how they are uh, similar. This is a kind of character sheet, right? This tells us something about the city. This defines, to a certain extent, it conveys an aspect of what this place is like. Uh, uh, how it will feel, how jumbly it is, how confusing it is, how confusing it might not be. As an example, here's Chicago. This is my hometown. Um, and we have, because we have a nice flat spe- uh, uh, stretch of ground leading up to a pretty orderly body of water, we have this nice grid. And everything that deviates from the grid does so over time for a variety of reasons. There are, the idea, by the way, is supposed to be that uh, uh, the expressways that head uh, southwest and northwest. The idea originally was that they would move across the grid at such an angle that they were always interacting, intersecting at, say, 2,000 north and 2,000 west. Now, they don't actually do that in actual practice. So what you end up with is this, is this variation between design and actual uh, activity on the ground, and that in itself creates character. If you will, think about it like this. Uh, Chicago was designed to be part of a character class, which is that it will be a north-south, east-west city on a grid. And then over time, it made choices for skills or for feats or for uh, uh, background abilities or choices during play that redefine how the city feels. And over time, it became a city that you can see still how it relates to its class, to its archetype, but it has become individualized. It's become specialized and it's become a, a, a little bit more personal to itself and a little bit less like any other city that might just be on the grid. Um, and this relates to everybody right in those fiasco. Everybody here not know Fiasco, which is completely legit if you don't. I just want to know so that I know that not to. Great. So uh, this is a relationship map from Fiasco. When you start off a game of Fiasco, what you do is you have the names of the characters, and you'll know some facts about those characters, but what you also do is define the spaces between them going around the table. So, for example, here we know that Edgar and Eleanor uh, are brother and sister, uh, but don't remind me. Right? It tells us something about their dynamic. Um, what you don't do, generally, is map the space going across the table. That will emerge during play. 
And that is absolutely a space, right? This is a, a, a narrative environment that is defined completely by the people that, that live in it. And those people bring with them, if you will, the spaces that are uh, inherent to their everyday lives, the places that are implied. In this case, Edgar and Annie are uh, both detectives, so we can assume that there might be a police station we can have them meet in or something like that. We can have them talk in, in an office or in a squad car or something like that. Um, so their dynamics will, will, will imply spaces, physical locations anyway, that will help us visualize and how, uh, how they can interact. But the nature of fiasco is almost always, when I play fiasco, it's usually by scene three that people go either, people either say, we haven't yet had a scene between blank and blank, or I want to know about the relationship between Annie and Eleanor. Why don't, they don't have a dynamic, and then you invent it as you go on the spot, Right. And this does two things. One is that as you're playing that scene and you say, well, yeah, let's play a scene between Annie and Eleanor where they meet each other. Maybe they don't know everything that, that we know about them and about their dynamic. Maybe they don't know who each other is at first. And we'll, we'll explore that. Uh, two things are happening. One is, is kind of a, it's almost punny, and I hesitate to phrase it this way, but it is accurate, is that we use these words like, let's explore, let's find out what happens there. These are spatial terms, right? We're going to explore that to a certain extent. We're going to go in and we're going to look around. <laughs> We're going to go in and poke around, and we're going to uh, 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 find out uh, what that dynamic is like. And it has almost an implication that the dynamic was like that already, and we're going to find out what it was. Like, we're revealing something instead of actually building it. Uh, but even still, we're using terms like reveal and build, which can be spatial terms, right? We have these metaphors already in mind for how these relationships work. Uh, the other thing when we're doing that is not only kind of exploring the space that was defined here to be the center of the table, that we're communicating across the physical space and we're, we're using the narrative space and the physical space of the game uh, uh, simultaneously, right? That I want to know what's going on across the table for me. I want to know what the dynamic is with this other player. Um, we have all this information going around the table, but the table is created an arena where the actual play is happening and we want things to happen in the center of it because the, the physical real-world dynamic and, the, and the, the imaginary dynamic of the relationships share a... Uh, an overlapping space. That's not always going to be the case. When you're in a dungeon, the party may or may not be sitting in initiative order. They may or may not be sitting in the order in which they're going to march down the hallway or whatever, anything like that, right? But these things can happen. When they happen, they can have a... a is that, I, I, I want to say it's a profound effect. Sometimes it's actually, though, it's so subtle that is what makes it wonderful because what it is is that it helps you, again, map possibilities, map options and spaces going on easily because you can just say, okay, so I know that when I set a card down at the table... I'm going to set it between these two players. That's going to make, make the physical space map to the dramatic space. Uh, you can do things in D&D. I used to do a thing, I ran a, a Space Marines fighter pilot game for a long time, um, and I would do a thing where the, the, we would play the stuff between missions at the table of an RPG, and then in the missions what we would often do is put the players each in a separate chair, and there'd be a thing, right, where they would... Uh, we had a bit once where they, they walked down the hallway into the room and they each got into their cockpits, Right in their separate chairs, and they're facing kind of in squadron formation, and so they have a sense of how they can talk to each other, and, they, and that there's a lot of hearing without seeing the other one talking, and you're talking over your shoulder. And on one level, it's kind of gimmicky, but on the other hand, it's also the space, the physical space of play, projecting onto the narrative space, uh, creating a dynamic where even just the fact that it mixes up and, and emphasizes that there's a difference between the, the mission portion of play and the non-mission portion of play. Um, so these ritualized spaces can, can uh, uh, make a big difference in terms of understanding how players can interpret and map something like, say, a dungeon. Now this is a dungeon called the Tomb of the Dragon Slayer uh, that I've run a couple of times, and I use this map to, to teach sometimes uh, physical space and uh, narrative trajectory because it's specifically designed to, be, uh, to have a narrative arc on it and also to be 
hot-wireable so that you can break that narrative arc. A couple of things happen here. What it is, it's a series of dungeons. quasi-medieval Lord of the Rings style thinking that, oh, the good old days, man, we used to know how to build tombs back then, and that the more modern we got, the more simple and more like uh, uh, barrows the tombs became. So we're building up, uh, even though these are, for, for simplicity, just goes, kind of slopes down into the world, uh, uh, goes on this downward uh, uh, trajectory, They're, this is higher, then this is higher, then this is higher uh, into the earth. They're not directly under each other, but um, so you can enter here through the barrow, or you can enter up here to the Tomb of the Eagles, which is based on a thing from the Orkney Islands where the people used to put, uh, uh, just stack the dead or their bones, their bleached bones into a cave with the birds, eat all the flesh off of them until they had an ossuary. Um, and uh, the idea in this setting is that the guys who were put in charge of protecting the tombs, these uh, 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 a set of halfling protectors, were allowed to bury their dead here um, to protect these guys, and these guys were buried to protect these guys, and these guys were buried to honor and protect these guys going all the way down. But so for the players, the easiest ways in are through the front door, or they have this option, if they poke around the island and whatnot, they have a second way in. But those are both act one. They're both essentially first level aspects of the dungeon. We know that if you go in that way, you'll be fighting monsters you can deal with at the, at the level you come in. I've played this in Dungeon World, I've played this in D&D, uh, uh, so that I'm going to use some overlapping lingo, forgive me. But um, as you get further into the environment, you start fighting higher and higher level creatures, which is pretty standard dungeon design, right? Or level design, so you go through in the environment and you rack up XP and you become more proficient, you start fighting creatures or facing creatures or puzzles that are a little bit more dangerous and then as you keep coming that further down you discover that, spoiler, the, uh, 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 the dragon that was buried down here with the guy who slew it um, is not quite as dead as everybody thought it was and its scales are now roaming around like kobolds trying to dig their way out. Um, uh, you come down to where those guys are buried and the kobolds have dug out all these tunnels and the dragon's lair is now uh, 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 their ritual shrine and all this stuff is going on and things can just get, can go from bad to worse. But to hotwire this, you could, there are a couple of different options so you can see that you can move through this way. There are little bottlenecks that funnel people in from one zone into the other, from the, the Act 2 to the Act 3 areas, so that I have a sense to uh, uh, how to convey, look guys, you, you can hear things up ahead or smell things up ahead or see things up ahead that are beyond you, that are, that are, that are really dangerous, that you want to watch out for. Or, uh, you can do it completely narratively, completely fictionally, by saying uh, uh, you've moved into a completely different generation of the tomb, right? And you know now that you're in a place that is more ancient. You're into a place, so up here, this is all simple barrow stuff, receding passages and such. So it has the, the natural stone uh, uh, walls and it has these etched swirls and whorls and things of stone. And then as you get down here, you have this catacomb style that's almost like what, uh, what Vikings might have wished they could have dug, but they didn't necessarily have the, off in the ground or the time or anything to dig, but big elaborate catacombs with gold uh, embossed dragons and stuff all over the walls and gold leaf scales and uh, lots of visual indications as to what they're heading towards. And then as you get down here, you have it all torn up and, and defaced by kobolds. So you have this sense of progression that you're moving from one sense of environment to a different kind of environment. The dragon used to come and go from, this is his lair where he was slain, used to come and go through this passageway. Can players come in through here? Strictly speaking, I don't give them the information to do that most of the time, but can they if they decide that they're like, no, you know, we want to scout around the whole island and poke around. This eventually just comes out to sea, so they have the chance of finding it. If the players want to go and find it, I'm not going to lie to them. I'm not going to say it's not there. But if you enter through this passage, two things happen. You don't know 
and you don't understand what's going on in this room, so you don't necessarily have all the abilities to fight the monster, because it's part puzzle, part combat encounter, uh, uh, to fight this monster and figure out that, that, that why the Dragon Slayer's body is there and how neither one of them really died and their souls are entangled and blah, blah, blah. But uh, uh, you also have a, a narrative experience that is uniquely yours. Right? That is now, you have a different arc and trajectory, which is it might be a short story, <laughs> but it is yours. And the map helps you understand not only that this, that this narrative progression exists, but that you have jumped it. Right? It shows the place they have moved from, uh, uh, not necessarily even, I mean, to, well, here where the design from the GM and the design of the people who built the tomb overlap, but into the place where they say, so yeah, so we just uh, we just dug into uh, in from above, right? We just started digging. We spent five weeks doing it. It was boring as hell, but we just you know it took us twenty minutes of game time. No big deal. We made some checks. We dug in from the top. I missed that whole first passage and that whole first you know the barrows and stuff. I don't know what any of that was about. We didn't get into that treasure, so we didn't have any of the magic items to kill the dragons. So what we did is just drop the ceiling on him and figure he's pretty well buried now, right? <laughs> okay, so that's not what I expected to have happen, and it's not the narrative trajectory that I carefully set out, but it is. Uh, uh, but it exists because of the work that was done here. It still funnels into that experience, and it means that uh, there's a kind of situational awareness to the environment that the players had to say that they're still envisioning the space, even if they're, I, I don't want to say cheating it, because that's not entirely accurate, but even if they're trying to get around it. Um, uh, uh, and part of the reason that that environment worked so well and worked for me when I used it in multiple different adventures was because of uh, 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 the notion of imperfect persistence, right? This is a thing that we do in uh, uh, spatial design or in spatial uh, 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 histories. Is the idea that space is expanding, contracting for time, so the castle is bigger now than it was, or smaller now than it was. Uh, its population has changed, whatever you have, but that uh, it literally physically moves, or it layers up or down over time. Where you say, "Oh yeah," so like we have the thing in Chicago that where there are all these streets people think are based on London, and they're not. Where we have those submerged basements, and you kind of have to walk over them. We have some of those in, uh, in the neighborhood where I live. And what that is is because at one point to add plumbing, it was like, well, we can't dig because there's nothing. It's all we've already dug. It's all a mess down there. We, it's, or it's tunnels in some cases anyway. So we're going to just lay the plumbing down on the ground and then put new roads on top of it. So that since we can't dig, we're going to build up. Well, all these houses are here. Well, great. Your your first floor is your basements now. That's just the way that is. Right? That's not necessarily a perfect design. It's not a city where, but it's but it's a, a, a response to reality, and it's this the, the city layering over time in response to to limits on space. Uh, uh, and so spaces remind us about things that we care to remember and hope to forget. Uh, one of the examples of this is that I didn't know, I learned this thing about how, why the streets are layered the way they are, like, since I moved back to the city in the last two or three years. So, I didn't know that because nobody cared to remember. Nobody bothered to tell anybody. They're just like, yeah, whatever, that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's just the way, that's just how the city is. It's, how, it's always been the way since I was a kid, it's just the way things go. Uh, but it's also the stuff that we uh, uh, hope to forget. Uh, the example actually that I love is um, there's a uh, uh, there was a church that was struck by lightning in the town where I went to college, which don't read into it. And uh, uh, nobody repaired it for a long time, and in part it was because of money. But then they also were just leaving piles of bricks everywhere. And I don't know if it was because hey, take some bricks, or if it was because look, we don't want to forget that we can't leave it like this, right? We want it to look like a ruin so that we'll get on it, so that we'll deal with it. And eventually they did, and it looks beautiful now. Uh, but there's also things where you find uh, like the uh, uh, Holyrood Abbey in Edinburgh, where uh, uh, that thing is, is, a, is a ruin. We have the ability, we have the technology, right? We could rebuild it, but we don't. Why? Because it's beautiful and because we want to remember why it was torn down. We want it, that's, its, that's its identity now. At some point it gets frozen, and it's still only going to be temporary, but multiple generations have reached the conclusion, yeah, that's fine, live it like that. We'll do that. 
That says as much about the people who live there and the generations of people and what they agree on as it does about the people who might want to change, or about the history that made it that way in the first place. I, I was at this example. Um, I, I don't, I'm from the Midwest. How many of you have been to the desert? Have been to like the Mojave or, or the Sahara, any like real desert place? Is it lonely? Do you get the impression, right, that for me, when I, when I drive through it, there's the question is either you go, wow, there's nobody here, right? I am alone. Or the alternate interpretation is, wow, everybody else in the world but me agrees not to be here right now. <laughs> right? Like, everybody else isn't lonely. Everybody else reaches a decision different than mine, which is, don't go there today. <laughs> right? So depending on how you want to look at that kind of aspect, there's an implicit and explicit notion of how, that, how the individual traversing a space interacts with everybody else or why the space exists the way that it is. Um, also, so I was in Scotland recently, and we saw these, uh, we're just after the referendum vote, and we found uh, uh, graffiti that said things like, freedom from the tyranny of Westminster, smiley face, or Scots blew it, right? The, the, it's almost cartoony, the extent to which the city is saying, this is the time and space that you visited in, I mean, like, it's one of those things that, like, if I saw that in Dishonored, I'd be like, it's a little on the nose, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, I appreciate it, but it's also like, eh, I, I get it. But when you have the diversity of it and you have it actually happening in real life, that's sort of based on the fact that this is the way cities operate. This is the way our spaces work. We act on the spaces. We act through spaces. We act within spaces. We're always doing this stuff. And especially in an RPG where what, what, what I can communicate to the players is I can communicate the deserts of Athens. I can communicate... The, the, the planets of Star Wars that can communicate the decks of a starship, right? But I don't know who's going to tread those decks. I don't know who's going to survive in that desert because you're all going to make the characters for it. I can give you some sense of what I would like those characters to be or what options are available or what have you. But the spaces are one of the ways that I act as the GM or I act as the designer and that you're going to act as the player back at me because you're going to dr- bring the roof down on the dragon or you're going to fly a starship to some uncharted system, whatever it is, right? And that's true for characterizing these spaces because space is a narrative vector. Uh, the example here that I like is uh, uh, this is all information that you can communicate to make players smarter about their world that their characters inhabit, a world that the characters probably know better than the players do without just feeling like you're expositing at them. right? So for example, stone columns that once held up a roof have become obelisks splinted by time, coiled up leafy vines. It's a little purple, sure, but what it's doing beyond just describing the space and telling you that there are that there is still life here and that it is ruins, is that even though there is not a roof now, right, there used to be a roof here. How, I mean, sometimes you can tell, you walk in and you go, okay, you, I know that these things were load-bearing, or these things were part of like an old like Grecian temple or something, right, that they held, held some kind of big triangular roof. But without giving a history lesson and saying, uh, so it used to be the Greeks used to build temples held up by columns that had big roofs on them and stuff. We can dig into more of that information, but you can, you can kind of create passive perception, which is really hard to do in an RPG because everything you do is overt on some level, depending on how you want to dial the, the resolution of what overt means, because you had to say it out loud, right? Subtext is, is, is emergent, but it's hard to accomplish by design, because when I say it, is it subtext now or is it part of the text? Which is something else that I'll get into the editing thing this afternoon if you're there for that. But, um, but this is a way of communicating through space to the players things that the players should know through their characters without just telling the players outright, you know the following things, and giving them bullet points. You still want them to be small and digestible and so forth, um, but it's important that you can communicate this process because those vectors are so hazy, where if I see you still hold up a roof, I don't know if you're picturing, for example, um, a Grecian obelisk, like a Grecian pillar, or, a, or a, 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 an Egyptian obelisk, right, when I give that description. On some level, I have to just accept that that's the way that's going to go, that I can't, we're not all going to completely overlap. Uh, uh, 
But I can also create the dynamic by which you are now leaning into the space. And you're saying, so are these round columns? Like, are they Grecian or are they like square Egyptian obelisks? Or is it like, a, are they the kind of squat wide in the middle kind of things or whatever? And now, now we're in the space and we're talking about it. And the thing there is to dramatize it so that if, you, if the player is doing that, the character should be doing something too. Whether it's whether they're uh, 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 etch, uh, uh, doing rubbings of etchings or they're, specific, or they're just wandering around marveling at things. Uh, uh, it's, it's an interactivity. It gets the players to lean forward. It gets the characters to interact with the environment. And since the environment is what you as the GM can bring from the book, from the adventure, from your imagination to the table so much, it's one of the few things that you have, I don't even want to say control over, but it's one of the ways that you have to express uh, 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 decisions, plot, by which I mean physical spaces, plots, uh, 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 text and subtext by presenting this stuff for players to interact with, even though you can't curate exactly how they're going to interact with it. I want to cover more about this curation through space and time in just one second. Before uh, I do that, I want to say this. Um, could you do me a favor and picture in your minds a planet of orange grasses and red trees with little antelopes running around and a giant dinosaur standing in the middle of it with its head uh, 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 against a, a green cloudy sky with a giant planet in the background filling part of that sky. Right? Can you give that, put those elements together in your head? Did you picture that or did you picture something else? How close is this to what you were picturing? Right? It's not too bad, right? But, but it's not accurate. It's probably not exactly, the, the, the camera angle might be different, the hues might be different. I left out the spaceship. Um, dinosaur. Uh, uh, yeah, what kind of dinosaur, right? That was a very particular. Um, I didn't stripe the dinosaur, but there's the dinosaur is striped, which I think is cool. Um, uh, uh, whenever I'm describing something in an RPG, whenever anybody's describing something in an RPG, it's, you start in one spot, and the players start to drift out to wherever, and then you can either just be like, no, guys, I said there's, there's a fireplace. Or you can keep adding on to that description over time so that the process of expansion is being harnessed for everybody's benefit. So that as the imaginations, as people, as the players are filling in the details through play, and they're saying, and, they, and whether they're conscious or not, they're picturing the green uh, uh, raised patterned wallpaper from their grandmother's house is in this room now, because that's, because they, this one player remembers that. And for another player, it's red smooth wallpaper. And for another one, the wallpaper's peeling, or whatever it is. All the, that, that, Arrangement is possible to be revisioned. It is not a slight to tell a player, oh, no, no, I was picturing the wallpaper like this. What do you, do you, what do you think? Something else? Like, yeah, you offer the, the detail from your grandmother's house, and you're revising for everybody. It's not a thing where you have to just drop the information at the beginning to describe the environment and then roam the environment. You can keep describing the environment over time because people, like, I didn't realize that there were the little circles of this wallpaper when I first came in, right? But I did, after several minutes of leaning up against the wall. You figure stuff out. You, you pick up details as you occupy space. So description is a thing that occurs not just for space and in, in, in the fictional space, but over time. And you should be dropping those details throughout time as best you can. Um, likewise, in examples, if I say, picture a ruined city, right? So I say uh, a city that is uh, uh, long dead and in ruins. Uh, uh, this one might be a little dark for the wall here, but right, you can get a sense of where you can get some of the green kind of growing up and you've got this ruined cityscape. And it's a little, it's a, I think it's very well rendered, and I think it's, I like the, the, the way the light hits the buildings and stuff in this. It's got a great sky that I had to cut off part of it, but is, um, uh, uh, but this is just one way to kind of say, so I say a ruined city, and then I might say there, you can kind of see silhouetted there, just left of center is there's a deer, uh, and I might indicate that detail, which you might not notice at first, but I might indicate throughout the description to say that there is also life here. It's not, it's a ruined city, but life is coming back, and these things are happening, and these little details make a big difference. 
But if I just said a ruined city and you pictured this one from the game Enslaved Odyssey to the West, you're not wrong for picturing this, but we're arriving at very different tones, right? This is verdant. This is, this is overgrowing in greenery. Uh, this is cavernous. The city is, uh, it looks like its plates have shifted. I mean, the street levels have changed. Things are, are pulling all over the place. So we might start from two different cities, but then be moving towards a center that incorporates both what I'm describing, what you're visualizing, by letting your descriptions come back and reinform the description. We have to be ready to be constantly remixing our, our, our imagination. Uh, because then it's entirely possible that you pictured this one from Destiny, which is not remotely. There's, there's no greenery. It's, the palette is completely different. Uh, but again, what we have here are details that might emerge over time where we see that this is, this is like a station, like a transit station, where the sign becomes clear, where if, if the player characters enter this from one angle, we say, or fly in and land, they may not see that sign until they're on the ground. And so I may not say, oh, you know, it's a transit station, or you just realized it's a transit station. You can communicate that through details that are revealed over time as the players explore the space rather than just doing like an info dump. Uh, uh, and so what that does is, I love that, that the, this word rapport for this, because what it is is that the players are going into the world, and the world is coming back to them. They're speaking to it, and it's speaking back. Um, uh, there's a, a, and you'll see confusion and boredom and confusion are both mentioned here, and part of the reason this is, is I'm, the, the cardinal sins of storytelling are boredom and confusion, right? Uh, and this is especially true in RPGs, where if a player is bored, they won't engage, and if they're confused, they can't engage. They want to, maybe, but they're, they, they don't they're like, so wait a minute, hang on. How big is this room? How many bad guys are there? Are there stormtroopers here? I didn't know that. Right? Or whatever. Um, uh, uh, gradually playing out the environment creates a situation where uh, the, 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 the players have a, a rapport with the space, obviously. But what it also does is it means that it creates a natural sense of dramatic tension of a timeline. Because it says, like, so is that moth significant? I don't know. I, in this case, that's an example I actually have used quite a few times. I've never seen it. It's just... Of course there's a moth. There's always moths around. Whatever. It's night, there's lights. It's the way it goes. The floorboards creak as you go to the window. That might be a warning, depending on the game. Right? When I run like a stealth game, that's very important, where you go, yeah, just so you know, people might be able to hear you just even walking around in here. Right? The room's not li it's like that. But I might also say, you hear rain collecting the flower pots. That's an example just to say, oh, don't forget, it's still raining, in case that detail missed anybody during the initial description or in case it's going to come up. I like it because it creates a sense of, of the space outside or a little bit of audio and visual. It has a whole little thing. But it's not like those flower pots or monsters are going to eat you. It's not a clue that way. I, I, I was running a game of Star Trek where uh, uh, they were on an alien spaceship far from the Federation or whatever, and they're, uh, 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 the aliens are, sub, are like amphibious, and one of the players punches one of them out, because whatever, because uh, that's what players do. And when he falls, <laughs> he hits his head on the bulkhead, and it gongs, right? It makes like a metal, metal sound because he's got a helmet on, so it, it's metal on metal. And one of the players goes, oh, obviously, what we're supposed to do is because they're from an aquatic planet is we've got to, like, communicate with them through, like, uh, uh, audio, like, whale sounds and stuff, and we'll bang on the ground, and they'll hear that, it'll be like sonar. That's what we, obviously, he's, uh, he's so obvious. I mean, it was so, she spoke with such disdain, and I'm like, no, it's just the helmet hit the wall. There was no, I mean, I could change it now, I guess, make that the case, because that's kind of a cool idea, but it sounds like, it sounds like I'm embarrassed and you don't like it, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll just stick with what I was doing, but... But the ability to misinterpret that kind of detail is a player's right, or the, and the ability to, to take it and, sub, and submit it back to the table for consideration for greater use to build on it is a player's right, that's, that's, and that's part of play. It's one of the great ways that a player can interact with the environment and thereby make sure that they're interacting with the game uh, and the game world. Um, so having those kind of little details that come out over time... Uh, uh, they can create dramatic tension, even if it's just a matter that if you're investigating the trail of a, of a murderer, 
And you're like, you know, we've got to get this person before he or she flees the country. And I say, Rain is collecting the flower pots. Like, yeah, guys, come on. Right? Sometimes all I do is I just give out another detail. The players are like, we're boring and let's keep going. And that's not true either. Some players respond different ways. And that's fine. But what it does is it also gives telemetry back to you as the GM or you as the designer, depending on where you are in this process, to say, uh, uh, what are the players worrying about right now? What are they thinking? What are they picturing? How are they interacting with the world? They'll give you telemetry back very often when you give them telemetry. And it doesn't have to be a matter of, so what are you guys thinking? Right? It's, to me, it's, it's in the same category, but uh, it's the implicit versus the explicit of when you just say, like, you, when you go to a play and you go, that's a great idea. I love that. Or you go, nobody's ever tried that before. And you're talking directly to the players then, right? And you go, oh, wow, I never thought of that. But you're also, you could be encouraging them. You're giving them your help, orienting them in the, in the game, or you could do that by orienting them in the space. Um, this is the island of Yamatai from Tomb Raider. This is just a, a, a map that is very cosmetic. The new Tomb Raider, right? This is the one that's very uh, new, 2013. Um, uh, uh, that's just cosmetic and has uh, a lot of details, but conveys a little bit of its desolation and remoteness because it has this vast, vast, empty land around it and not a lot of detail to the ground itself. This is the same island populated with gameplay data. Um, which tells you, among other spoiler, which tells you some things that uh, 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 what there is to do on the island. The different icons give you the sense of lots of different things that you can do. In this case, one of the cool things, and again, this is uh, I'll do this without saying too much about what goes on in the game, just in case. But is that when you're done with the game, you can go back onto the island and re-explore stuff that you might have missed. In case you've gone back in and you missed a relic or you missed an artifact or whatever it is. So some of the stuff you can do kind of in any order, and the island becomes again a space and is sort of a different way than it did. What was that? a strictly narrative space to begin with, but with a lot of layers of narrative. And that's a question I'm dealing with a lot, uh, uh, dealing with a, a place called The City on the Saturday for my, my game Dark, where I have this city that has a long history, and I'm like, do I do a history, and then what the neighborhoods are like now? It's A lot of RPGs do it that way. We did a book called Damnation City for Vampire that wrestled with the idea of how do we communicate the fact that the city is, is, is alive and acting and colliding all the time and has all these different factors and people interacting and nobody can quite agree on what it is and it has the political dynamics and all this stuff. Uh, uh, Yamatai from Tomb Raider is a great example of a place that does not just exist for the game but feels like it existed before that or feels like it existed for games that were played by people that got there before you. There's, there's a World War II and it's all like, you know, it's like a lost island where, you know, uh, ship graveyards and stuff are there and people have been getting stranded for years. There's like a World War II element that took place there, uh, uh, stuff that predates even that and this, this comes across to create this, this multifaceted dynamic where you've got uh, uh, quasi uh, uh, micro urban rural uh, uh, me, ruined environments you've got the woodlands you've got these uh, uh, this vis vis uh, uh, visual visible undeniable uh, uh, religious element this this uh, kind of cult element to the island um, and it's being conveyed here and most of these are through screenshots or through concept art but you can see that the palette of the world itself has this kind of gloomy uh, 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 almost steely gray aspect to it even when it's greenish or even when it's bluish or even when it's reddish there are these kind of style, this, this tone that's tying it together. Uh, but then you can drill down through all of that, and this is one of my favorite parts of this game, is the fact that not only do you find these little artifacts, but then what it does is it has you turn them over, and when you, buzz, when you roll them around uh, uh, in your hands, the, the controller will buzz a little bit, and if you stop there and hold it there, a, a new detail emerges as you find out something like, oh, it's, this one smells like tobacco, or this one has white like makeup on the inside of it still, or whatever it is. Um, and that's a great way that, that to zoom now from the Yamatai map, from that gameplay map, we've, we've very rapidly zoomed down to something that is in my avatar's hands, something that has this physical quality, that has an imaginary weight to it, that has conveyed a smell to it, and all that stuff is saying, look, this world has been here before you got here, this world might be here after you leave, it might not be the same, right? But what it is, therefore, is it becomes a demonstration of consequence, which is to say, 
this same story, this artifact is going to be different now because I have it. So I can do whatever I want, especially in games where you've got magic items or you've got uh, a future tech or things like that where you go, well, I have the only one of this X1 ray gun and its fate is for me to decide now and I got it out of the environment and I don't know why, but there are initials carved in it. I don't know whose those are, right? Well, now that's, a, that's another path. It's a, a conduit into the world you can go, who is JRE? I don't know. Maybe I'll find out someday. Uh, and that creates, uh, uh, through these layers, the ability to drill down in a way that suggests that you've got, so here you've got the ruined plane, you've got a demonstration of the kind of high action adventure that's going on even in the gloomy environment, and you've got this uh, uh, wooden structure, this now kind of ramshackle wooden structure, and that combination of elements is, again, like creating a character. It's like the different elements in a character sheet in terms of like uh, uh, what the place's physical environment is like, what its historical characteristics are like, how long it's been there, and why, it's, uh, why it is the way it is now. Um, that gives players, again, something to, to, to drill down into, to dig into during play, so that they don't just walk in and get a description and move on to the next room. The reason that the dungeon is one of the classic examples of, of, of level design and of uh, RPG design is because uh, it very structurally uh, creates a space where uh, uh, the gameplay is dramatized by the environment. Right? If I want to know more about what this room was used for, I have to investigate. I have to search. I have to poke at stuff. Right? I interact with the space and I can find that stuff out or the next space. I draw maps as a player. Uh, 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 I interrogate the kobold, whatever it is. And uh, 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 the environment was the vector for narrative. The flow chart for the plot was the dungeon. Right? Do we want to go deeper into this area to find this out? Do we want to go uh, 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 explore the, the why the ogres hate the bugbears, whatever that stuff, right? Those subplots, all that, those questions are corridors and rooms. Um, uh, uh, but we have a lot more uh, dynamic ways of doing that in something like Sevastopol Station from uh, uh, Alien Isolation, which is designed, uh, they're, they're, this is designed in part because this is the way the space station looked in Alien, uh, or the, the refinery looked in Alien, is why it's in the segments. But they didn't have to do that if they didn't want to. One of the reasons you keep this up is to indicate that in Sevastopol there are different categories of living. There are different categories of life, and there are different, and that it feels corporate, it feels like a corporate campus somewhere. Um, and that it has a level, it has this, this like foundation almost to it, and that it has an above and below. So you, as you get higher up, you get you know, richer in certain categories, and as you get lower down, you get more industrial and uh, uh, more common, I guess, if you will, and kind of to give it that kind of class structure to it. Um, but then they do this kind of color coding, which isn't going to come across real here, but you can see some of it uh, on the bottom for like engineering and medical and science and stuff. It gives you a sense that some of that is in each of those towers. Right? The space is reflecting not just the way that people fictionally live and would design for themselves. It's a, I mean, it's a space station. You can design anything. Right? You design it to do what you want it to do. And what they decided was important in the fiction of Sevastopol was that, well, we're definitely need some medical gear, some medical there, some engineering all over to keep the thing running. But it's also important that the people who live up here can get some distance from the other people, that they can get some sense of isolation or, or some sense of... Uh, 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 being a little bit removed from their job. So they have, to the elevator ride is longer... Mass Effect, from your job to your house. Um, sometimes really, really, really longer. Now, when communicating this kind of stuff or having these big ideas that you want to communicate uh, uh, to a player group or to an audience, it can be valuable to have these be really... to find a way to sketch them so that you can do it through metaphor or, or you can do it through a really bold display that you can build on not just over a scene but over the whole campaign. Uh, uh, in Destiny, right, the fact that we have this interstellar traveler, this giant... Uh, 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 porcelain-looking orb that arrived, this, this, this solid, opaque, white ball from space that saved us somehow, um, and now it now dwells over a city on Earth. 
like a like it's almost going to come down and touch the city. Raises a lot of questions. We don't know exactly why it's as damaged as it is now. We don't know exactly what's happened. A lot of it is in the history. The game will dil- will drill down into the stuff over time, but it also creates a situation in which you can very quickly convey this dynamic to the players, and it creates a shorthand. It creates this this uh, 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 posterized archetypal image very quickly that you can, s- and then you can riff off that to create intentional and accidental subtext through play, where now every time there is a stellar body, like a, like a, a moon or anything, it might allude back or harken back to the traveler, to this savior above the city. Uh, uh, but that you have this, that this, this spatial being, this entity is literally hovering right over the city just to ward stuff off, and that maybe it's, a, it, do we know it's damaged? I mean, it's clearly damaged. Do we know whether it's gonna be able to succeed again, right? You have all these kind of dramatic questions that come after. This is one of the big, I think, uh, uh, dramatic elements in Destiny that's really well done is that that translation immediately from the visual to the text uh, uh, of what could be very trite ideas. It's another battle between light and dark. It's another battle between humans and aliens. And all that stuff could be really, really boring. But the interface and everything is about light all the time. If I were describing Destiny in the tabletop, I would have to describe things to you like, uh, the way the moonlight, or excuse me, you're on the moon. The way the sunlight on the moon reflects off your shiny black machine pistol, right? On the one hand, I'm conveying the fact that this, this is a game where you walk around and you're known primarily by what gun you're holding, and it's because that's what you conceive your character when you're doing that. And it's a game where the 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 shiny black tool of death that you're carrying is uh, cold and industrial and human made and and uh, 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 very mundane, but you've got all this light coming off of it that makes it seem almost heroic or that might seem uh, uh, maybe heroic to the point that we think that it's satire or whatever, but I would play as they do in the game with light and dark to such an extent that you can take the subtext and make it text in the environment. In, in Destiny, for example, you literally turn to light when you die and then just get turned back into matter. It's very... It, it, it's a setting that is designed specifically to make it so that the gameplay is literal, which is fascinating. And that's not going to be true for all games necessarily, right? But so uh, 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 this is a concept for a game called Thief, uh, there is a thief up there in the rafters. You can kind of make them out, maybe. Um, but when you get in a, a concept art like this, you walk into an environment like this, and you can't talk to the NPCs, I go, oh, right, because this is what makes not an RPG not an RPG. Um, the question, though, in theory, is that what, what I want you to think about when you think about an environment like this is there's a half-moon window over the door with this leaded glass motif with the stuff in it. So that... I'm just going to get super nitpicky. It's true here. It's true in the... Uh, 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 this environment where there's a pipe that goes halfway through the street... It's like, uh, like a speed bump of some kind of conduit running through the street here. Um, so somebody has to make all that stuff in the game world, right? This is what Minas Tirith makes me crazy, is because it's the city, and I don't know what they do there. Like, what do the people who live in Minas Tirith do? Like, there's a ton of people in there, and apparently what they do is wait to die. <laughs> I mean, and the movie shows somewhere there there are there are uh, 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 herbs drying in the windows and this and that, but it's also like nobody apparently you're not allowed to like hang a poster. Right, it's all going to be this exaggerated environment, and that could be, uh, and that could be literally true or not literally true, depending on. Maybe there are literally laws that say, no, no, no we we, we want to keep uh, uh, the city looking this way. Like the city of Aberdeen, Scotland, is all seemingly also made out of one kind of stone. Um, but there's a, right, but there are lots of uh, 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 neon signs and ads and things all over the place that interact with that in a way to to, to again uh, convey the sense of time that is going on in that city. It's one of the things I love about the city in Thief is that as the sense that it's been there a long time but has also, over the progression of these games, stopped moving forward. That it said, okay, this is, this, we're, we're, we're going to do, we're, this is the way we are now. We're like this. We're like, do we like it like this? Well, it's not really on the table in this discussion. That's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that we're done. This is how we live now. 
but all these things mean that somebody in that environment has to build them. And if you have a thing in the environment, every one of those tunnels out into the game world, where you can say, so wait a minute, can I, can I take up glass crafting now as a, as a class skill? Can I do that? Can I be a glass crafter when I'm not in dungeons or stealing stuff or whatever? And the answer is no, because it's boring maybe, or the answer is no, because we don't have rules for it. But, but in the setting, the answer is, I guess your character could maybe be a window maker also, could be the apprentice window maker and try not to get murdered by his master for it, if you guys know that story. But uh, 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 everything that you, that you put out there as a detail had to come from somewhere. And even though the truth is that it came from the fact that, well, I saw a window just like that when I was driving through Door County or whatever it is, that's great. But it also means in the setting it has this dual purpose where it says somebody in the setting maybe made that window because they saw one just like it when they were driving through Door County or the Shire. And, uh, and what that does is so it, it, it creates a little bit of the difference between imagery and atmosphere and the literal portrayal of the stuff that you're creating. And one of the things that I want to bring this up here is... Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, you, this actually works better on this wall than it does on my screen because all you get here are the torches, the raised fists, the noose, and the, the preacher clearly calling for something terrible to happen. Um, players very often, in my experience, uh, uh, when you convey information, um, we will, and like readers, we will backfill a lot of detail into an environment that we are given a sketch of. But what's important for you when you're conveying is to be able to, whether it's the, the giant orb above the city or whether it's uh, uh, this vibe of, uh, uh, look, torches, raised fists, a noose, right? You could just do it through a list of details uh, uh, that continue on. You go, uh, uh, the crowd is coming. You can see just a handful of faces of the smoke, but there are dozens, maybe hundreds of them. Raised fists, torches, a noose. What do you do? The torches are sputtering. Oil is dripping down to the ground. What do you do? Right? You keep layering out this information to create that deadline and to move the crowd forward. So the, the dramatic and the narrative have this immediate overlap. Um, I'm going to have to breeze through something here real quick, but uh, uh, I can talk more about this at some point. This is a map from uh, my game Dark for a place called Aviswick Manor. The top map here is an actual castle called Warwick. In the real world, that's the actual map of it. I added this wall on the bottom, and I think I erased a couple little details to make that map work at one point, but that was my original rough version of this map. I picked it because it is both a genuine lived-in place. It is a real... Uh, uh, it has a lot of little oddities and peculiarities to it as a building, uh, but also because it has a great through line, which is that there are a handful of doors, and to get to, from one end to the other, you have to do a lot of uh, uh, movement through multiple spaces. There are, there's not as many ways to be circuitous, um, so it, it had a kind of a narrative shape to it. It was even easy to say that if somebody enters here, they will pick up the following pieces of information as they move east, and if they enter in the east, they'll pick up the following information, pieces of information as they move west, and then presenting that information in the form of eavesdrops and character data, um, things that the characters will say and do uh, that mean that you get a different but not necessarily wrong perspective on the house depending on where you enter and how you move through it. Um, so it has this it, it is vaguely linear. Um, that map turns into this one, which is the final one from Alviswick Manor, um, which is a little more compact, uh, a little cleaner so people can look at it and write on it better. It's just a little easier to point at. Um, and to divide into zones for gameplay purposes. Uh, but it still has this notion that in theory there are only so many ways into the building and there are only so many ways then to move through it unless you want to break, break windows or do things that, that when the players do them, no player's going to do casually. They're not going to do it accidentally. They're not going to be like, oh, I guess I, I break a window going through, I just go through this window. Right? You're going to be like, okay, so like, you, you want to draw that out as the GM. You say, okay, so how do you get that window open? Or you know that's going to make some noise, whatever. And that doesn't mean they can't do it, but it just means that they're aware that they're doing it. Right? That it feels more like it's being committing to the action. Uh, and then packets of information come across through play that we use uh, 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 to dramatize the space. 
and make it so that there is a difference depending on the order in which you move through the environment. In, uh, in dark, uh, this top card that you can see, the outer chapel, shows the, the materials that we use to define space in a dark setting. There are the specific details under the name of the outer chapel, the SL is the stealth level, which tells you how easy it is to hide in that room. Um, and the little details are, are laid out in this fashion so that you can offer all of them at the beginning as like an info uh, 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 orientation, or you can offer them throughout. You have these that you can give these little details, these things will spark stuff. Some of them are more detailed than others. But as you're moving around the space, there's an eavesdrop. Um, uh, we get a little closer look here. There's an eavesdrop, which is a term that we use in dark for something that you overhear in the environment, and that's usually a handout for the player. Um, and it tells you what loot there is to steal. And this tells us a lot just by looking at this in terms of what this game is about. It's about its, uh, uh, the culture of the setting somewhat, because we can see culture, history, and religion are going to come up. But the, the description is largely about what can I steal from this room? Because that's what dark is about. It's about thieves and trespassers and ne'er-do-wells uh, uh, moving through rooms where they're not supposed to be. So we have stats like suspicion um, that all point back to that idea of uh, the space conveying what the, uh, uh, what the gameplay is about. Uh, so the eavesdrop in the chapel prayer, if you go in there, one of the guys is named Harold, and he says to himself, please protect me from the spirits that haunt this place. Let not my body nor my soul come to harm. Give me the strength to guide me towards right action and to keep my mouth shut so that my Lord might treat me well. Uh, this is usually the first eavesdrop that people get because the most people enter. The, the, the scenario is specifically designed to say, well, listen, we got a guy on the inside who's going to let you in through the door by the chapel. If you want to do that, great. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. But a lot of players do because it's the easiest way in and because they get the sense, as I try to communicate as, as literally as possible in convention play especially, that the game starts when you enter that door. That is when we go. Um, and so this is often the first thing they hear, and this sets the tone for the house. This is the house, in a, in a manner of speaking, the servant, the staff, speaking about his own life to himself in a place where he hopes he won't be overheard, right? Being honest and gives you a little bit of information about his religion, the, the his feeling about the house, and it conveys all this again through... through uh, uh, and the reason we call it an eavesdrop is because uh, in a stealth game in particular, you get this chance to see a game world when the game world doesn't know you're there. That's almost impossible to do in any other format. I think about it in first-person shooters where the only time, the only perspective you see on, on the environments of first-person shooters is when they are all ratcheted up and want to kill you. And then you get the impression that this is what this world is like all the time. right? But of course it's not. And stealth games get to wander around and see what they want to do or what they're up to when you're not present. Um, so the last thing here is this... Uh, uh, question which comes up sometimes that I just want to uh, uh, leave us with, which is that uh, if PCs can shortcut through a space, disrupting all the hard work that you did to design it, what is the point of designing? What is the point of making it so uh, specific? Why not just list stuff? Um, to which I always respond, what is the point of arranging text in a book if a reader can just go to the last page? Right? People are allowed to do that. That's fine. I know a lot of people, unfortunately, who read the first and last page of a of a story before the movie. You guys know the, the joke that Michael Caine says about how he's decided he's going to make a movie? That he's, he reads the script and he reads the first page and he reads the last page and if his character's on both pages, he makes the movie. Um, so cheating like that works. People have their reasons, they have their, their systems, but now he has an anecdote and a unique version of that story to tell. Um, and that makes the path that through the space theirs. And it will still be a narrative because you've created, the space has a trajectory, it has an aspect to it that will change if that space has layers and is being described over time and is drilling down both into history or progressing into the future, the players will generally take care of the future for you. Um, then that space becomes theirs, and that's what I want from an RPG as a player and as a designer is that ability to hand off the world and let somebody else make it theirs and live in it. Uh, uh, regardless of what I think the narrative is supposed to be, then they can go in and they can say, no, this is my character's story because this is the door that I chose to open and walk through.
There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you. No